Hello and welcome to Being Well. I'm your host, Forrest Hansen. I'm joined today, as usual, by Dr. Rick Hansen, and Rick is a clinical psychologist and best-selling author who spent over 35 years teaching people the key lessons from psychology and contemplative practice that lead to a good life. I'm also happy to say that he happens to be my dad. So, Dad, how are you doing today? Rollin', rollin', rawhide. <laughs> what an introduction. <laughs> an introduction unlike any other that we've ever had in the history of the show. But what I really like when I toss it to you, Dad, is that I honestly never know what I'm going to get. Um, it could be anything. It could be a deep reflection on the nature of human life. It could be... Uh, a line from a song. You just, you just <laughs> never know. And uh, maybe that sense of uncertainty and uh, confusion periodically, but it, but suffuse in love, um, is a kind of theme for our conversation today. So this is going to be the second part in our kind of conversation on building a good relator and developing strong relationships and good interpersonal style, good communication style, all of that good stuff. In our last one, we spoke extensively on attachment theory and the ways in which different kinds of attachment can manifest practically in our relationships. Uh, I spoke myself for a while about uh, being a secure but leaning anxious attacher and the ways in which that appeared. We talked about maintaining optimal distance and allowing our experiences and emotions and sensations with somebody else to fully complete inside of ourselves so that we can become more comfortable in a little bit of discomfort. Uh, another big point that we raised was the difference between experiences and attributions. Just because somebody makes you feel a certain kind of way doesn't mean that that's their fault. So if somebody makes me feel uncomfortable, it doesn't mean that they're a bad person, it just means that I felt uncomfortable. Now, of course, you gotta be careful with this stuff. Sometimes if somebody makes you feel uncomfortable, it is because they're a bad person. But we're talking about kind of an assumption of a basic level of human decency here. And when circumstances are not decent, of course, a big part of life is about uh, recognizing that and taking appropriate action. And, you know, we've certainly had a half a dozen episodes at least focused on that topic. So I'll just kind of leave that where it is for the moment. So does that sound like a good recap, Dad? Great recap. Crushed it. Sailed right through. So today we're going to get kind of very granular and talk about some specific problems or skills or tactics that people run into and can use inside of their relationships, conversation, whatever else, to uh, understand and kind of be with people uh, more effectively. The material in this week's episode is related to Rick's live online relationship workshop. It's August 15 and 16, and you can follow the link in the description of the podcast to learn more. And if you choose to register for it, you can use the code BEWELL50 for $50 off the purchase price. Also, if you're a healthcare provider, the program does offer continuing education credits. And as with all of Rick's offerings, there is a money-back guarantee. Uh, so before we started talking, Dad, you had one right off the top of your head that I want to just kind of cue you into. Is there something that you've seen just really make a difference for people in terms of before they walked into your office and after they left your office? Well, I don't know how often I am able to pull a rabbit out of a hat, as it were, in terms of what happens in the office. But sure. one thing I've just started, would like to start with, is this fundamental notion of paying attention or deliberately to emphasize certain qualities of it to give attention. And relationships are built from interactions, and interactions are built from turns that are exchanged back and forth. 
And for those turns to have a chance at all of going well, we have to give people our attention. Flip around, how often do you feel that other people are giving, granting, offering their full attention to you? That's fundamental right there. Fundamental right there. If, something, if you want something to be better in a key relationship, give the other person your full attention, including paying attention to your own attention. In other words, can you recognize metacognitively that you're wondering or you're distracted or internally you're trying to figure something else out, you're running some little inner movie while listening to the other person with half your awareness, or for the breath that you're with them or the minute in a row, you're completely given over to them. You let them have you. You, you know your own autonomy fully enough to let them fully take you, take your attention. Attention is very much a property, and uh, we can often have a lot of issues around giving other people our full attention, feeling that other people are trying to take our attention when we don't want to give it to them and so forth. So it's often useful to be aware of just how you feel uh, and what the resistance might be to being fully present with, fully there with another person. We could say a lot about this, but just write that. The first five seconds, the first three seconds, the first minute, are you actually fully listening? Are you really there with them? That mm-hmm. can make an enormous difference right there in terms of giving you useful information and also giving the other person at a very primal, human, animal level what they really want, which is to feel received, feel heard. Yeah, I think that that reminds me of Dan Siegel's line, feeling felt or to feel felt. And that's a big part of what you're talking about here. And for me, that's a key characteristic of empathy. And it's the difference between just listening versus empathic listening. And and we talk a lot about empathy broadly, both on the podcast and just out in the world and how important it is to be an empathic relator and things like that. But for someone who uh, struggles with that, on one level or another. And that was a bit of a theme in our last conversation. I I talked about not so much my own struggles with empathy, but just creating optimal distance with somebody else a little bit. Um, If you're somebody who has a hard time giving over your attention fully, or you don't want to feel that connected to what somebody else is saying or whatever it might be, what are some of the things that somebody could do to kind of cultivate that greater sense of like giving empathic attention? Paradoxically, deepen your internal sense of your own body. Hmm. Tuning into your internal sensations increases interoception and gives you a supportive sense of just at a raw physiological animal survival level that you're going on being. Hmm. And so with that sense of continuity of all rightness, basic all rightness, your heart is beating, your oxygen's working, you're breathing, you're, you're not in great pain, you're not overwhelmed, by um, increasing the internal felt sense of the stability of you, you then become more relaxed around becoming available to them. Another thing to do is to find interest. Interest is something that we can volitionally develop. We can mobilize interest. And uh, I had a funny conversation uh, with your mom one time. You know, I wanted her to be interested in something. And she said, well, you're not very interested in shopping. 
And I thought, whoa, <laughs> okay, I can dig that. And I just took it on because I, I don't have a natural interest in shopping. And I would mobilize interest. And, and in that way, we can mobilize interest in, in other people. So you find what's interesting to yourself. Uh, what are they thinking? What are they saying? Also, look for micro-expressions, the, particularly around the edges of the eyes and around the edges of the mouth, two major areas that are uh, very full of nuance uh, for human communication. So here we have just simple attention, interest, and in your interest and attention, even a listening to a deeper level. What's underneath what they're saying? Why are they saying it? What's it like to be them? Think of all the layers and complexities and the, the multiple voices in effect inside your own mind. You know, it's like a, this symphony of sorts that's just playing and not always in harmony with the different sections. Well, that's what it's like to be you. That's exactly what it's like to be them. Right? What are some of those different instruments? What are the different voices, the different threads? What was it like to be them? What do they long for? These are very good questions to ask yourself. And research shows that one of the uh, elements of empathic listening is a kind of active process of trying on different ideas about what the other person might be feeling, getting a sense of it, going back and forth between what they're saying and your ideas about what they might be feeling to what would you be feeling uh, if you had their life, and then checking out that surmise, that hypothesis with the other person. Uh, so, yeah, listening, listening really deeply. That's right there, a huge key in relationships. To echo one thing that you just said, um, one of the things that I found personally helpful in becoming a better listener, because I'm not sure that I've always been naturally a wonderful listener, is to do one of the practices that you suggested, which is basically as I'm really paying attention to what somebody else is saying, I try to also at the same time really pay attention to the emotion or sensation that I'm feeling inside of my own body. So it's kind of like my ears are performing one function and my brain is sort of performing a, a diagnostic of what's going on inside of me and I'm trying to do both of those fairly well at the same time. And uh, sometimes the brain moves back and forth. The brain might move to really what the ears are doing and really the act of listening and then it might move back to the sensation happening in my body. And that's really okay. Um, but I think that that actually is a kind of, of hyper-engagement in a good way with uh, what somebody else is saying and the impact that it's having on you. So talking about listening or maybe empathic attuning, to put it another kind of way more broadly, uh, one of the things that's really helpful to be able to be empathic or to relate is to be able to step out of our own perspective a little bit. And I think that a lot of people might say this or know this or agree with this in kind of an abstract way and think of themselves as somebody where, oh yeah, I'm really good at paying attention to what somebody else is saying. And oh yeah, I'm really not very attached to my own perspective. Like I, I just evaluate everything on the merit and I just look at the facts. You know, you hear that line a lot. I just look at the facts. Uh, but speaking for myself, uh, for a pretty long time there, I was trapped in some pretty rigid views of the way that the world was or the way the world worked. Uh, without really realizing it, without having a great awareness of my own rigidity, essentially. And I think that in the same way, people can have not a great awareness of their own lack of empathy or their own lack of good listening or whatever it might be. 
so what's something that somebody could do or a, or a practice, a exercise, a question they could ask themselves to kind of discover whether or not they're actually a good listener? Whoa. Because <laughs> I, I think it's such a fundamental question. I think most people who are bad listeners do not know that they are bad listeners. Wow. I think that's really great what you're zeroed into here. Yeah. It's like you can't hit a hammer that or hit a nail that's standing up if you don't know it's standing up, right? Yeah. So how do yeah. we find the target? Well, one question I think a person could ask themselves is how able are they to sustain attention to anything? And another question related to that would be to uh, just pause inside your own mind a minute into an interaction with another person and ask yourself how much of the time you were actually fully listening to that other person and how much of the time your mind was wandering elsewhere. That's pretty honest, right? I think also we can get feedback from other people. They can let us know if we're a little, um, you know, they feel like we're not really that present with them. You know, we're always looking around the room. We're checking our phone. We're not really there. When we're interacting with them online, you can tell these days online, people are doing, you know, Zoom meetings and what. And you can just see their eyes moving because they're actually reading emails or checking Facebook rather than, you know, really there. So that part, I guess the last thing I would just say is that it helps to remind yourself that attention is yours to bestow so that you really do have the right to disengage when it's time to disengage. Or you really do have the right deliberately to give someone partial attention because you're kind of trapped in a situation, you're in the meeting, it would be inappropriate to walk out 20 minutes early, but you know where this is going. You, you really can listen with just 10% of your awareness while the rest of you is fantasizing about what you're gonna do over the weekend or writing or drafting You know the main outline points of this piece you've got to develop later in the day. I'm speaking of some personal experience there. <laughs> I survived graduate school by writing papers for class B while listening to the professor drone on in class A, you know, in the back of the room. Uh, and so if you know that it's your right to bestow attention, uh, that paradoxically helps you be freer and more and uh, kind of autonomous and, and, and taking ownership of, of the giving of it. I think it really gets back to one of the big, uh, I don't know, big three, big four ideas I see kind of over and over again in your thinking and work on relationships, this idea of intimacy and autonomy. Yeah. Um, and the more secure that we are inside of ourselves, the more certain we can be that we're doing things because we want to be doing them, kind of essentially. Like the the less perturbed my core is by an interaction with somebody else, again, getting back to the content that we spoke about in the last episode, the more comfortable I can be giving them my full attention. And I think that, again, to use kind of a personal example, I was in the world of three quarters to half attention at best most of the time for most of my life because there's that sense of your... Um, your permeability increases the more engrossed you are with somebody else. And I didn't want to be very permeable because I wanted mm. to kind of protect the interior because I wasn't secure with it necessarily. But the more secure that I became with my own interior, the more comfortable I was with being a little bit more permeable. And as you're saying, the more confident I was that I could both give my attention if I wanted to 
and take it away if I wanted to. I wasn't kind of trapped in a mode of expression with somebody else. To put it a certain way, you were disturbed about being disturbed. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Which then goes to a wonderful resolution, which is to become increasingly undisturbed about being disturbed. <laughs> yeah, for sure. We're like the there's an acceptance of a certain level of discomfort in in our interpersonal interactions, I guess, to put it a certain kind of way. Like for me to have really great, positive, fulfilling, deeply emotional interactions with somebody else, I need to be open to the possibility that I will have a less than great one to an extent. Like I I if I bring the floor up, I also kind of bring the top down in some examples. And the trick through life is both to expand that window of tolerance with like what could possibly happen in an interaction with somebody else, but also it's to keep on bringing the floor up as you bring the ceiling up, right? Like the more secure I come and become in myself, the less possible it is for somebody else to hurt me in an interaction interpersonally. Um, so the less I risk by engaging with them in a deep kind of emotional level. I think that's one of the most useful aspects of personal growth. It's to expand that window of tolerance, so-called, or to expand the, to draw on um, teaching from Gil Fronstel, to expand the, the range of experiences in which we are free. Mm. It's not about expanding the range of conditions in which we are free, but it's about expanding the range of the experiences we have in various conditions in which we can have a kind of freedom. We can be undisturbed, in other words, about being disturbed. Yeah, I think that's really a lovely saying. All right, so that was one big Rick tip, you know, pay attention. Yep. Uh, what's another one? Give them what they want. Now, obviously, don't give them what they want if they're being abusive, if you're being exploited, if you're being exhausted, blah, blah. And I speak from some privilege here in that most of the time I'm with people who what they want from me is kind of normal range, and I have a lot of power in the interaction as to whether I give it or not. So I want to fully acknowledge that this piece of advice kind of comes from that frame. That said, very often with other people, the fastest way to fulfill your own self-interest is to give them what they're asking for, which therefore requires expanding your window of tolerance for how you feel when someone wants something from you. This is very fundamental. We are, um, most animals don't particularly want much from each other, even of their own kind, even in packs. They just sort of, it's like parallel play, this description of how toddlers, even preschoolers interact with each other. They're kind of side by side. They're each munching on their own banana, um, but they're not wanting very much from each other. Now they do tend to want things from each other, especially uh, juveniles and you know they're playful a little bit, primates are, but on the whole, um, humans, really, really want a lot of stuff from each other. We need a lot of stuff from each other. We're enormously dependent on each other. But on the other hand, we often will acquire quite a charge on when requests, bids, demands, implicit, explicit, wants, needs come at us. You're asking too much of me. Well, I want this from you, right? And it's counterintuitive, but boy, is it really helpful to zero in on what do they actually want what did they want that they didn't get that now they're complaining about? And I don't mean complaining like they don't have a right to complain. I just mean there's a complaint. And going forward, 
what would feed the hungry be? What would zero this out? What would just solve this problem? So no, so it would disappear. And it also puts you in a much stronger position to mm. ask them later to give you what you want from them. Yeah, to, to put it maybe another kind of way or in a slightly different framework, um, I guess I would refer to that as like getting comfortable with people wanting things. You know, so like I get to choose at the end of the day whether or not I quote unquote give them what they want. But people are always going to want things with us. And sometimes, as you're saying, we can feel very affected by somebody wanting something from me. Like, why why do you want this from me? Why are you trying to get something from me? It can make that kind of uh, feeling in the back of the neck or in the throat kind of go up in the body. Oh, it raises all kinds of things. It's like powers coming it, at it's us. It's a scarcity thing also from yeah. a survival perspective. Oh yeah, maybe I don't have enough to give you. If I give it to you, I won't have enough for me. Also, often in a want is a implicit criticism or fault found. Like, yeah. well, why didn't you give this to me before? Or because you made a mistake, I want this from you. Oh yeah, a lot gets stirred up when we're in, in the wanting field. <laughs> yeah, totally. So, and again, it comes back to that, like the more secure that you feel inside of your own established position, the the easier it becomes to kind of manage other people's wants of you inside of a relationship. Yeah. I'll, I'll name quickly here three important transitions with your mom, my wife, related to <laughs> wants, okay? Great, yeah. First, uh, right after you were born, uh, my friend, uh, your godfather Bob was coming to town we were going to go sailing with each other much as we normally did. Uh, your mom and I had a life in which we each typically did different things over the weekends. I would go out in the mountains, the hills. She would do something, go to the mall, you know, whatever. Then we'd come back together. It was all fine. So you were sitting there in her lap, and um, you were maybe 10 days old. <laughs> maybe you were like a month old. And I said, oh, by the way, Bob and I are going sailing on Saturday. And we thought we could have dinner with you that, that night. And she stared at me like I was an uncomprehending fool. Like you were a crazy person, yeah. Because I was an uncomprehending Yeah, I was going to say, because like you probably were with that one. <laughs> yeah. And I suddenly looked at her and I clicked, oh, wow. I needed to take her into account in a whole other kind of way. Her, her ask, as it were, was unspoken, it was just a given in the situation, but it was very, very real. And there was a shift for me, a paradigm shift in terms of taking her wants and needs bound up with you as your as her as your primary caregiver who was, you know, nursing you and feeding you and all the rest of that, um, to really I had to take that into account in a whole new kind of way. That was one. A second was as you got a little older and your sister came along and I was in grad school, I was making most of the money. I did not want to be Fred Flintstone. I did not want to be Archie Bunker. I wanted to deliver the goods as a very competent and skillful dad. I wanted to do my share of the housework. I was really delivering. I was fulfilling my job description in all kinds of ways, but your mom was still unhappy with me. She was still dissatisfied with me and I couldn't understand it. And then I came across this phrase in grad school, that was revelatory for me, relationship tasks. Whoa, what a concept. And I was really good at getting tasks done. So what I did in my mind was to think about relationship tasks. Oh, I was dropping the ball in the relationship tasks while hitting it out of the park 
in all these other categories. So in my own mind, I just expanded my frame of my to-do list. You know, I added relationship tasks to it. You know, asking your mom how she was doing, sustaining attention, being really present for it, and clarifying in my mind and making room for that in my day uh, that this was a very important part of being a good enough husband. I have sort of the impeccable husband job description, and I wanted to really get an A, and I wanted to get an A from my wife. And that was actually a really helpful thing to think about relationship tasks and to step out of, again, the frame of thinking that, oh, I'm being dominated here by giving in to realize, mm-hmm. no, mm-hmm. this is the winner strategy for me yeah. mm-hmm. for, in all kinds of ways, which including being the kind of good, decent, benevolent person I really yeah. wanted to be. Totally. So those two were major shifts for me. And then the last one was to reframe how I related to complaints and criticisms. So very often what happens is that a criticism will come at us uh, with a messy combination of um, demands woven into it and shaming and who knows what's in it. And it really helped me to start to sort out what was coming at me into three piles. Uh, I call it moral fault, skillful correction, and gracious gift. And I got to decide, even if the other person thought that the fact that I put the cup in the dishwasher upside down rather than right side up was a terrible moral fault. To me, it was just a matter of, oh, okay, I can see it's more skillful to put the cup down so it doesn't gather water in the dishwasher after you run it. Fine, going forward. Then what I would really do is I would, when people would have a complaint like your mom, uh, about me, I would try to zero in on <laughs> what do I need to do to make this go away <laughs> from yeah, now yes, on yeah. and take maximum reasonable responsibility and zero out their complaints. So increasingly, I got to enjoy what the Buddha called the bliss of blamelessness. And here too, I had to work through my feeling that I was you know, being uh, dominated or unfairly criticized, all these side issues. And I had to help myself keep my eyes on the prize which is to take maximum reasonable responsibility. And that's it, no more, nothing more to complain about. I'm gonna put every single cup in the dishwasher the correct way from now on, and you're not gonna be able to find fault with me anymore. Dad, I'd, I hate to break it to you, but only sociopaths put cups in the dishwasher with the cup side up, okay? <laughs> if you don't put the bottom side up, I don't know what you're doing with your life. I'm, I'm going to attribute moral okay. fault to that one. That's, okay. that's not just a behavioral issue, Dad. All that right. is a moral problem that you need to strike. But no, I, I, I totally agree with you. I, I think that that um, – I, I hadn't really thought about this, so I'm glad that you mentioned it. This idea of feeling more okay with people wanting things from you. Yeah. And trying to remove the cloud of attribution and just kind of chaos that emerges when somebody wants something to kind of narrow in on two really important things. Um, What do they want and how does it make them feel? And like, I think that that's kind of the whole game. They are feeling something, which is why they are wanting this thing. And certainly for me, getting back to that question of like, how do you know you're being a good listener? or How do you know you're being an empathic person? Part of it for me is, are you asking yourself that question? How is this making them feel? Great question. What's it like for you yeah. to be with me and yeah. to ask that question in a very live way? Yeah, and, and what's it what's it like for you to want this from me? Because wanting something, just as being something wanted 
is can be discomfort, can be uncomfortable. Wanting something can be extremely uncomfortable. That's a great point, Forrest. And it makes me think about what it's like for us to be on the receiving end of the wants of others. And if you think about it, everybody just about has personal history with being on the receiving end of wants coming at them from others of all kinds, small wants, big wants, appropriate wants, inappropriate wants, appropriate wants wrapped in a very inappropriate wrapper, embedded in larger systemic relationship and power structures of various kinds. And so it's understandable that we get kind of charged up about receiving the wants of others. For example, in my case, uh, my parents communicated a lot of wants when I was growing up, usually in the form of a criticism. So they wanted me to do X because I was doing Y. And for them, Y was a problem, even though much of the time it wasn't actually much a problem at all, but they were both pretty picky and fault-finding and anxious for various reasons. Okay. So also, broadly, I really want to name something here. When I kind of casually and matter-of-factly in a summary way say, eh, just give them what they want, that, number one, is about reasonable wants from others or what you can discern as the reasonable core, reasonable as you define it, of what's coming at you. And also, certainly, absolutely to acknowledge, I'm speaking from my own background and privilege, in which almost all of the wants that came at me were, you know, sort of normal range. They may have been annoying. They may have had some top spin attached, but they weren't invasive and domineering. And I could say no. I could say no. So when I'm saying sort of in a summary way, uh, you know, give them what they want, uh, it's to speak to normal range wants in normal range situations in which you, the individual on the receiving end of the want, has absolute space, one way or another, to say no, and not to give them what they want. Mm, mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I think here of the um, the relatively small and kind of normal issues that crop up inside of a relationship that over time become this kind of endless argument. That's generally because both parties think that they're kind of somewhat in the right, and neither of them really wants to budge. Right now, I'm thinking of like, several hundred conversations that we had when I was younger about whether Laurel was doing enough dishes. Laurel's my sister for context. (laughs) Or, you know, who emptied the dishwasher more around the house. And it just became this kind of endless argument that eventually we were able to untangle ourselves from. Um, But just looking back on it, it was kind of this ridiculous thing that, you know, maybe if I or, you know, some other member of the family system had just kind of shrugged and been like, eh, whatever, let's just move on from this by embracing doing 10% more dishes, our lives would have just become so much better based off of doing 10% more dish work or something like that. So it's kind of speaking to what you were saying there about the the relative privilege, and I've definitely had the same thing as a, a straight white man, the requests that have been made of me, I've generally been pretty reasonable. And when they haven't been, I've been very comfortable saying no and drawing a really strong boundary around them. Some people are maybe a little too comfortable with people wanting things from them. Uh, They have a hard time drawing strong boundaries inside of their relationships, whether they're intimate or not. And they might tend to, um, to put it a certain kind of way, they might tend to cave too easily or kind of give up their own needs for the needs of others too quickly. 
Uh, I'm thinking right now, if you're familiar with the Enneagram, which is a personality typing system I'm pretty fond of, uh, of a lot of the issues that twos, quote unquote, in the language of the Enneagram tend to struggle with. These are people who are kind of chronic givers, and they really define themselves in large part through what they're able to give to other people. For somebody like that, how can they remain strong inside of their relationships? How can they build up that sense of like separation or get more comfortable with the idea of honoring and valuing their own needs so that they can comfortably say no to somebody else? Wow, very deep. Um, for some, let's say, personality types or styles or tendencies in particular, it can be helpful to name to oneself what the payoff is of that way of being, that modus operandi, that MO, we could say that strategy, or even in terms of personas, your act. What's the payoff for the act, let's say, of giving to others, solving other people's problems, helping, quote unquote, others, let's say, and helping them to be better, let's mm. say. Is there some payoff there? Is there there's some way in which that this uh, has been acquired as a means to an end of various things, such as a way of ensuring relationships with others because it might foster some dependence upon you if you're the endless giver. Now, I'm not saying those are always the motives way deep down behind love and nurturance. We, we love for good reasons. We nurture for good reasons and so forth. But it's really quite helpful. I think you're pointing out here for us to be mindful of the deeper levels of our personality structure and, and why we're that way in kind of a clear-eyed way. You know, what are the payoffs? What are the functions? What are the benefits? Pause. What are the costs? In all ways, for you and for others, pause might there be a better way? Might there be another way to achieve the same results with fewer costs? That's a broad thing. Second, um, I think for people who just, it's not so much a personality-based strategy, it's more just a temperament. They have porous boundaries. Uh, they, they feel very uh, invaded or very given over to or very carried by the wants, the needs, the emotional states of others. Uh, inside them is just this natural movement to tend to others, to care for others, but maybe to the point of personal exhaustion. So I'm making a distinction between a personality style that's more strategic and one that's more just rooted in, in basic temperament. We all have different temperaments which have strengths and weaknesses associated with each one of them. Certainly that's true for my own temperaments. So what to do? Uh, you and I have talked a lot about how to experience yourself in various ways as uh, rooted and grounded strongly as you, as quote unquote me, so that you can be open to quote unquote we without being overwhelmed by or overpowered by. Uh, the wants and the emotions, the, the emotional reactions, let's say, of others. So you could visualize yourself as a deeply rooted tree. You could visualize that there's like a fence of some kind between you and others. You might imagine there's sort of a shield between you and others. You could tune into your internal body sensations, which turns up the volume in effect in your brain of me compared to we. So we isn't so overwhelming. You could also remind yourself that you don't have to agree right here and now. You can buy yourself some time. You can wait a little bit to decide. You can also remind yourself internally, uh, as I've done actually, that uh, I don't have to give you what you want from me. 
there I was a moment ago saying, give them what they want, but it's also, but to be able to, in other words, if you can't say no, your yes is not really authentic and healthy, especially over the long term. So you need to be able to say no in order for your yes to mean anything. So reminding yourself that you can say no, reminding to yourself that you can reserve judgment, also reminding to yourself that you can take turns, you can accede to their wishes right now, you can, let's say, receive and give them what they want, and then it will be your turn. Remember, it's going to be your turn to ask for what you need as well. I think that's a great framework for somebody to be in if they maybe struggle with um, giving too freely of themselves, for lack of a better way of putting it, maybe. I think that there are kind of two places that a lot of these um, desires to give excessively or give to excess uh, can come from. The first is what you're talking about, which is this kind of underlying deep desire to create uh, closeness in order to create dependency, to put it in the kind of most um, stark way possible. And to be clear, again, as you're saying, these are not necessarily desires that are in our conscious mind. They are based on subconscious processes, which are themselves based on a long evolutionary history, wherein people who contributed to the band survived and people who did not died. Yeah. And so if you're a good contributor, you're going to survive. Yep. And, and to just keep, and keep on going for us, just a underline key point, there can be a range of intensity and, if you will, pathology in these ways of being from just sort of subtle, ordinary differences all the way to something that's really extreme and creates psychiatric level issues for yourself and maybe for others. Yeah, so there's a normal range here. It's based on a lot of stuff, and we don't want to over-pathologize it. But that's kind of one uh, possible route for why somebody might give too readily of themselves. Another possible route is that the sense of the self is not particularly strong. Ah, very good. Therefore, yeah, there's an attachment to things outside of the self through which we can derive identity, essentially. We can, like latch ourselves on using our grappling hook to the big boat that's going by and let it kind of carry us in its wake. And I'm, you know, comfortable and knowledgeable speaking about this one because I suffer from it to an extent. What? So, yes. So there you go. So again, to refer to one of my favorite uh, personality typing systems, the Enneagram, I am a six in the system. And one of the features of most sixes, myself included, is that there's not necessarily a profound confidence in our own kind of thoughts and views necessarily. So what happens is something outside of ourselves gets held up as like the system that we're connecting to. And for me, I can sound very assured on the show because the system that I chose to connect to is basically like science and reason. And so I look to thinkers outside of myself and I parrot a lot of what they say and things like that. And over time, I had to increasingly develop a strong core of self, basically, inside of me that I could reference to in terms of what my actual desires were, as opposed to ones that I had essentially adopted from people outside of me. And I think that people who fall into this kind of... uh, extra giving mindset to a certain extent, some of them have a similar issue where the self feels a little weak and fragmented. And so by attaching to things outside, they can kind of buoy that up or feel like they're doing, quote unquote, the right thing. And just speaking personally with that, uh, one of the things that's been really helpful for me 
is to move past my initial response to something, whether it's a desire to give or something else, and try to just take an extra five seconds to ask myself if this is actually what I want to be doing. Um, because we have a lot of conditioned responses based on that sense of like weakness or fragmentation. And the more that we can move past that initial like ego response into a more kind of into taking a little bit more time with what we actually want to do, I think that that can be a pretty powerful practice for people um, who are trying to uh, get a little bit more in touch with what their needs and desires are outside of other people. Wow, Forrest, that was really profound. And well, thank you. Gives us a much pause, both as people in general and as a father <laughs> in particular. <laughs> uh, oh, there's so much there, isn't there? You know, one of the most useful things I did was this case conference for a year and a half with just a brilliant psychologist named Carla Clark, who I think is maybe kind of semi-retired a little bit right now, also a poet. And we were exploring deep psychoanalytic theory, particularly some of its modern developments, as applied to different cases. And in the process of that, of course, one could not help but reflect on oneself. And one of the really useful things she said was how when someone is somewhat fragmented in various ways, whether it's maybe layered, like there's the act on top, and then there's sort of who we are, uh, afraid we are underneath that armor, and then deep down there's who we really are. You could think of it that way. You could think about it more um, as a result of trauma, perhaps, or people who have warded off parts of themselves that are sort of exiled, uh, exiled alter egos. People use that kind of language in terms of Jeffrey Schwartz's work, Richard Schwartz's work rather, on um, family in internal family systems theory. Right? So one of the best, most powerful ways to bind together, to re-knit, to mend together the tattered rags of the psyche into a single whole garment, really working the metaphor here, is through sustained, authentic self-expression, mm, saying mm -hmm. how you really feel and feeling it while you say it. Now, maybe you need to say it only to yourself because there's nobody else that's, self, that's safe to say it to, but at least to yourself, you can say it. And then maybe you find another person, a friend, a therapist, a son, a father, to, who you, to whom you can really say it. And then eventually even to say it to people around whom, who are challenging for you in one way or another. Uh, just the, the, and, and that really was a very, very major journey for me as I look back on my own efforts to sort of knit back together again and to feel more whole um, myself was through open, authentic communication. Really speaking how it was for me and feeling it while I said it again and again and again and again and again. Um, and over time, uh, it's become less necessary to say everything, uh, and I've kind of learned the merits <laughs> sometimes of not <laughs> oversharing. Because, <laughs> you know, back in the 70s, we shared everything at length uh, with each other and with total strangers on the bus. That's how it was, right? So it can be, you can go a little too far. Anyway, but just that and what it takes to be courageous, to really be real about what's actually really going on with you at a deep level and to tolerate it when other people are doing the same. 
That's just so fundamental, isn't it? Yeah, no, I think great points and also has been extremely helpful for me in my life. And particularly the part you named about even if you don't say it out loud, just say it in your head or ask yourself how you actually feel. And for me, that question of how do I actually feel right now has been a very important developmental question because I think that sometimes we can get kind of exiled from that experience, right? From the experience of our body, from the experience of our heart, kind of whatever you want to say, where, again, we just get trapped in the pattern rather than trying to find what the actual sensation is. And, um, you know, that's, again, just been a really helpful one for me personally. So we uh, we wandered into the deep end for a second there. Uh, I do want to ask you, you've offered two kind of big tentpole suggestions for building stronger relationships. The first one, essentially, pay attention. The second one, essentially, the whole family of things having to do with wanting. Uh, people wanting things from us, us wanting things from other people, and increasingly come in, coming into like a healthier relationship with that. So just because threes are kind of nice and tidy, what is your third suggestion here? I'll say it this way. Talk about what matters. What mm-hmm. I mean by mm-hmm. that is in two senses. First, underneath our thoughts, our feelings, our positions, our opinions, are our needs what we really care about. Why does it matter to you that you're this way? So that's in one sense I mean it. In other words, it's to ground the surface levels that we're talking about with what is deeper and more meaningful. And look for ways to actually talk about what is deeper and more meaningful in you. Talk about what matters. Ask about what matters. And then related to that, try to get out of what I call proxy wars, where you're arguing about how to organize the closet, but really what's underneath it all is you're feeling, let's say, left out that your partner has not been very interested in your inner world, hasn't asked you questions, hasn't been willing to talk with you, uh, maybe is dropping the ball in terms of teamwork in the home, or flip it around. Maybe you're arguing about the closet, but what's really going on is you haven't had sex with each other in a couple of weeks, and you're just really irritated about that. Instead of you know arguing at the superficial proxy level, which doesn't really get at the deeper level that you really care about, try to work your way down to, look, what's really bothering me is this. So that's what I mean by talk about what matters. And it doesn't mean not have conversations about the best ketchup for your French fries, or you know, there's a place for that, or the weather, or whatnot. <laughs> but at the end of the day, this life is short, it's precious. What are we talking about and why? Yeah, a great suggestion. And I think I'm trying to kind of find the right way to put this. But in my own experience, um, some of the most important conversations that I've had with other people have essentially been asking the question that you just asked, like, what are we actually talking about here? Or what's the actual problem here? a moment where things felt weird with somebody else for a while, and I wasn't totally sure why they felt weird, but they just felt kind of weird. We were having a lot of misses, essentially, in our interactions with each other, where they were kind of talking about this, and I was kind of talking about that, and we just weren't totally lining up. And sometimes it's helpful to just make the subtext text and have a moment where you say, hey, this is the experience that I've been having. I don't want it to be a judgment of you. It's just an experience that I'm having. Maybe it's just in me, who knows. But here's my experience. And 
why do you think that's happening? Is there something going on? Are you having an experience like this? Can we diagnose this? Can we work on it? And as you've talked about a lot in the past, a lot of the question is not kind of, will something bad happen? It's what can we do when something bad happens? And I think that this is a great example of kind of a preventative measure to intervene so fewer bad things happen and we reconcile them more rapidly, asking, hey, what are we really talking about here? So yeah, I think it's a great piece of advice. You know, at the end of it all, I just wanted to give you a couple examples of um, yeah. things I've seen working with couples. And one example is a situation in which people live with each other and there's an inequity in who's carrying the load of one kind or another. And I want to distinguish among the workload, the stress load, and the executive responsibility load, which is particularly relevant when you have kids. And in a heterosexual couple, research finds generally as an average, as a generalization, that mothers are carrying much more of the task load, the stress load, and the executive load than their partner is, even if they're also working full-time for a paycheck. And that adds up over time. That creates issues. So inequities of load. And there, so there's a situation where basically A is saying to B, hey, B, uh, I would like you to do more work. I'd like to do less. I'd like you to do more. It's not fair. Da -da. Your, your complaint that you referred to a little earlier was that, hey, you're doing more housework than your sister is. She's getting off, getting away with stuff. That's not fair. The, the question then what's the, is what to do about it. And I think that it's important to be prepared to ask for what you want in a really clear way. And if another person is asking for what you want, if, for what they want rather, really ask yourself, is it that hard to give it to them? For example, if you hypothetically increased the amount of dishes you do by 15 minutes a day, that might double, if not triple, the amount of housework you're putting in and would immediately remove a charged salient issue for another person. Why not give it the 15 minutes? Or to use a different example, uh, very often couples get to a point, especially around year you know, two, three, four, and five, where they more and more kind of take each other in perfunctory ways. They get used to each other, and they stop actually having the kind of deep conversations that drew, the, drew themselves to each other in the first place. And they don't give each other the feeling of being interested in or pursued in, in some way, investigated in a, in a positive kind of sense. And so there, too, is something really to pay attention to that is very often easily managed. In many relationships, if A would just totally listen to B for an extra 15 minutes in a day, that might increase the amount of real listening tenfold compared to the current baseline. It's really quite remarkable. Um, so it's helpful to realize that very often what people want from us is bounded. It's particular. They, they're not that hard to satisfy. They're not human vampires, human black holes. <laughs> continually sucking from us, fear not. You can relax about that when it's true. And a little bit would make them perfectly happy. So that's another example. And then another one, just to finish here, is the deep desire I think we all have is that we will be found. There is the wonderful saying from the uh, British child psychiatrist, Daniel Winnicott, referring to the peekaboo games that children play. 
Uh, and, you know, they, they, they peekaboo at the face, so they play hide and seek. He said, a joy to be hidden, a disaster not to be found. We all want to be found. We want to be sought. We want to be pursued. We want to feel wanted. And I think often we tend to withhold that kind of prizing and cherishing and wanting and valuing from others for all kinds of reasons, including stuff that gets stirred up in us when we feel like we're on the receiving end of the wants of others. And it's often not that hard to communicate what is at the top of your authentic range of cherishing another person, valuing them, choosing them. Why not give it to them? Not a big deal. Give it to them. If it's real for you, give it to them. It'll make them happy. It'll make you happy. And it will clear the decks for you to ask for some of the same in return. Yeah, I think that that's a great piece of advice and a really good place to wrap this episode. So today we talked about a bunch of key skills for relationships uh, based on your many, many years as a couples counselor, family therapist, working with couples, working with individuals about issues in their personal life, many of which came back to relationships of various kinds. And many mistakes. <laughs> <laughs> yes, many mistakes that we've both made very personally in our own lives. I don't know I've about you. You haven't had them. enough time to make as many mistakes as I've made. Yeah, it's true. It's true. You've lived about almost twice as long as me, or twice as long as me. So that means you must have made twice as many mistakes, right? At least. Plus, I did not have the good fortune of being raised by me. Oh, wow. Wow. You're so right, Dad. You're so right. Because I was raised by you, I emerged perfect and unformed no, no, in every no. way, Just, clearly. Uh, you know, a, little, a fewer, uh, fewer, fewer maybe, rough Maybe edges. a little less harmed. A little, a little less, less neurotic. All right. All right. So, yeah, a little less neurotic. That's basically all I can aspire to. Um, okay. So your three big tips, they were essentially giving your full attention to somebody else. This included tuning into the body and cultivating a feeling of interest toward them and what they're saying. Inside of that, I asked a kind of provocative question, how can somebody know how they're actually empathic as opposed to they just kind of think that they're an empathic person? From there, we got into accepting wanting, but the wants that we have of other people and the wants that they are going to have of us. To give the caveat, I think we gave three or four different times. These have to do with normal range, understandable, reasonable wants, not problematic, domineering, power dynamic wants that can manifest in a lot of different ways. And the ways in which we can manage those different kinds of wants, both inside of ourselves and in other people. We took a little detour to talk about changing our relationship to criticism of various kinds, which you included in that section. And then we spoke for a while about the ways in which people can kind of actually increase the distance between themselves and other people. What if you're a person who is a little bit too permeable and finds it maybe a little too easy to give other people what they want? Uh, finally, you closed with a great recommendation to talk about what really matters. And inside of that, you gave some examples of times where people talked about things that didn't matter, and maybe some of the ways that they could have talked about things that did, and what that might have done for their relationship. So inside of all of this, um, part of the reason that this is so fresh for you is that you have a relationship program coming up. It's a two-day, one-day? It's a two-day live workshop. It's really cool. We're going to do it uh, the mornings of uh, Saturday and Sunday, August 15th and 16th, 9 to 1 um, p.m. Pacific time. And it's basically me in one seven-hour chunk with a half-hour break each day, 
seven hours of the most useful, most practical, most fundamental, most essential, most hard-won lessons learned from my own personal <laughs> mistake-ridden history. Suffering, yes. <laughs> that are good the for relationships of, of all kinds, including applications to primary relationships with friends and family. Awesome. Yeah. So really looking forward to that. If you're interested in learning more about it, I'll include a link to it in the description of today's podcast. You can also find it easily if you go to his website at rickhanson.net. And please remember to enter the code BWELL50 at checkout for $50 off the purchase price of the course. Thanks so much for taking the time to listen. If you've been enjoying the show, I do want to re-remind you about our Patreon account. It's patreon.com slash beingwellpodcast. Uh, You can support the show there, and you can also receive a variety of benefits in return. And if you've been enjoying listening for a little while, please tell a friend about the show. It's one of the best ways to help us grow and reach more people. And if you've really been enjoying it, you could even leave us a rating and a positive review on iTunes or the platform of your choice really does help us out. So again, until next time, thanks for listening.